Hello, this is Ray Brooks. Hey, this is Big Lou. That's double L-O-U. Hi, I'm Veronica Jackson. Hey, everybody, this is Adam Gusso. I'm D. Chupar. Hey there, folks, this is Don Flynn of the American Songster, slapping the dap with Jack Dapper. Hi, this is Guy Davis. Hi, I'm Shamika Copeland. Hey, I'm Ben Turner of Piedmont Blues. I'm here with Valerie Turner. And we are bluesing with Lamont Jack Burley. Hi, I'm Larry Griffin, and I keep it locked and loaded on Jack Dapper Blues. Yes, yes, yes. think about the blues especially when it comes to robert johnson they think of the devil they think of hell however if you truly understood american history and its effect on the blues people you may begin to have an understanding of what that hell and who the devil was in the lives of african americans natives and african descendants this is part two of my interview with scholar Tyler Perry. We discuss his co-authored journal, an upcoming book that brings to the attention the role of the bloodhounds before, during, and after slavery, its origin, where they were trained, why they were trained, and how the hellhounds or bloodhounds or canines have been utilized for centuries in the oppression and torment of the blues people. Every old place I go, every old place I go. I can tell the wind driving, the leaves trimming on the tree, trimming on the tree. Let's move to your next article that's becoming a book because in both scenarios, in both projects, we can discuss vernaculars and, and regions and, and songs that, that represent this. But this particular project, the title is in many songs of, of, of blues and songsters, as yeah. well as I, I would say abolition was going on through this entire conversation. So let's talk about slave hounds and abolition in the Americas. What brought yeah. what, what that on? Yeah, so uh, this is a forthcoming article in a journal called Past and Present. Um, it's co-authored with a scholar at the University of Louisville uh, named Charlton W. Yingling. Um, and he was a, a friend and colleague in grad school, and we had similar interests. He's, he's more of a, a Latin Americanist, um, specifically Haiti, Dominican Republic, um, and kind of the broader Spanish Atlantic. And so I concentrate mostly on British Isles, and, or, or I mean British Caribbean and U.S. South. And we 
we linked up because we noticed that we were studying different slave societies, but we were both finding references to dogs, specifically bloodhounds. And we started to think this, this is more than just a coincidence. There has to be some sort of interlinked transatlantic phenomenon that's occurring that's causing this proliferation of a specific type of dog um, that's used to control, subjugate, and or violently attack people of African descent, both free people of African descent and enslaved people. I, Correct. I make that clear. Um, so the, the basis of the article is largely an introduction to the earliest portions of our book in that we are looking at the, the genesis of using dogs as a way for first the Spanish to expand their colonial ambitions, to clear the land of indigenous peoples, to attack them, to intimidate them. So the, the initial Spanish colonists bring war dogs with them. This was a pretty common practice for most European armies or explorers. There's usually some canine on board. Now, the Spanish dogs were typically very large, mastiffs, um, is usually what the documented record suggests. And there were some incredibly violent, uncomfortably violent rituals that you can read about in some of the earliest colonial documents in that there was this ritualized form of execution that involved dogs. And my, my recollection is that even in certain areas, and I'm thinking mostly of uh, particular areas in Mexico, this was actually called a dogging. Uh, this idea that you were placed in some sort of arena or a circle and you had to contest against the dogs that were trained to tear you apart. Wow. And so uh, just like how people's heads were chopped off and staked to the ground as a form of intimidation, this was typically this was typically in view of the broader population so that subjugated peoples know that if you decide to resist, this is something that can happen to you. And so there are recorded uh, executions of indigenous people, including men, women and children by the conquistadors initially that were meant to intimidate the indigenous people and subjugate them. Now, as colonialism expands, a large percentage of the indigenous population dies through a variety of means, warfare and disease and whatnot. Right. And so with that concurrently is the expansion of transatlantic slavery. So whereas dogs were first used to clear the Americas of the indigenous inhabitants, Dogs start to be imported into the burgeoning slave societies as a method to contain the population. Mm. So initially, the subjugated people were supposed to be exterminated or chased away. In this case, they were now the dogs were now used to contain people upon plantations to prevent them from running away. Or if they did run away, to retrieve them and bring them back. Right. And this, this is essentially, for lack of a better explanation, comes down to a science by the, at least by the mid 18th century, in that there is a specific type of canine developed in the island of Cuba by both slave traders and, and, and dog breeders 
which earns the name Cuban bloodhound. And the the issue with identifying the Cuban bloodhound is that no one really knows <laughs> what it right. was. It, I mean, it looks basically like a large mastiff, but there are some accounts that suggest it was crossbred with bloodhounds, like more traditional bloodhounds, to help the dog's sensory power. I think there's even some reference that a greyhound may have been used to increase its speed. So they were using these breeding categories or different classifications of canines to form what you might call a super dog. Okay, wait, I'm sorry. I have to ask because it it sounds like... I mean, it almost sounds like a conspiracy theory or or, or something biblical that they come together to make a hybrid or Marvel (laughs) (laughs) to make a hybrid animal to to control human beings or or to go into warfare with human beings. This is what what I'm hearing. Yeah. And and if it wasn't documented, I wouldn't believe it either. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, because you I mean. You know, I was I came of age in the 90s and I think the movie was called Man's Best Friend, where that dog was experimented upon. It was unstoppable. Correct. Yeah, this is I mean, it's not quite that science fiction, but this really is an instance where humans were deliberately training a dog to have, you know, speed, strength and skill but specifically to target people with black skin. I mean, and this is, this is what's written in the documents. They actually develop a training regimen, which is documented in how they instructed or conditioned these dogs to solely hunt and attack black people. And, you know, the training regimen is essentially forcing an enslaved person of African descent to withhold food from the dog, to beat the dog while it's staked into the ground uh, ever since the dog's a puppy. And so in their minds, the dog is acquiring a natural hatred toward particularly men of African descent. And, Melanated people. Right. So the dog, once it is thoroughly trained or comes of age to where it's, it's useful in tracking is then released and put on the market as, you know, to be sold as this high caliber hunting dog, but specifically a dog that hunts black people. Wow. So, yeah. And and so the reason why this is important is because it wasn't just local to Cuba. Uh, Eventually what happens is during this period called the age of revolutions, where a variety of different colonies are challenging the empires or the, or the colonists. Whenever a black revolt or a revolt of enslaved people occurs like the second maroon war in Jamaica, the Haitian revolution, the rebellion in Florida, there are even things in Cuba. Now you actually have different European empires purchasing dogs across colonies. Wow. In order to deal with the maroon revolt in Jamaica, the British go to Cuba and, and purchase these Cuban bloodhounds because they are specifically trained to attack people of African descent. And then once the Haitian rebels start winning the conflict, uh, I think it's Rochambeau, who was the general at the time, 
procures these dogs as kind of this last ditch attempt to to win the conflict. Now, it eventually fails, but the pictures that are released from that particular conflict show people actually being nearly fed to the dogs, being placed in cages and having dogs bite them. And my co-author has found sources that suggests that the white people on the island of Haiti didn't seem to have a, a big problem with this violence. Uh, wow. He actually found one source that suggested the main complaint of having these dogs on the island is that they were too loud. Like that, that was the actual complaint that they, that they leveled. And, and then to get this back to the United States, the reason why this is important for understanding the U.S. South is due to these conflicts in the, in the late 18th century, by the early 19th century, the kind of the multiracial coalition of known as the Black Seminoles in, in the Florida Everglades right. initiate a revolt against the U.S. government. And so the American, white Americans, hearing about what had occurred in the Caribbean, procured these bloodhounds. And they were largely unsuccessful in tracking in the swamp. And this is a technique of resistance that enslaved people would often use. But one thing that does occur and the suspicion that later historians held is one of the reasons these dogs came to the United States was not just to prevent the Seminole revolt, but to actually get the dogs to interbreed with the local bloodhounds of the U.S. and then introduce them into the the expanding slave society there. And so after about the 1830s, you see a lot of advertisements about what were called Negro hounds or the best or the best dogs for tracking runaways. So it's this 1830 moment when these dogs are first introduced into the U.S. South that you see this proliferation of bloodhounds specifically trained to attack um, enslaved people who were trying to escape the plantation. And so all of this is connected to this transatlantic market in which canines were deliberately developed and then used to subjugate and sometimes kill people of African descent who were simply fighting for their freedom. Or in some cases already free and trying Absolutely. to keep their freedom. Absolutely. Yes. Wow. Which morphs into the most popular song, Hellhounds on My Trail by uh, Robert Johnson. Right. Yeah. And so I as well as morphed into the civil rights movement. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and so the the broader contours of this project um, and, and we, we weren't originally going to go in this direction because we're, we're both trained historians and we have a, you know, a specific limit on the past that we specialize in. So originally we were going to stop around 1865, but I kept finding so many references to bloodhounds uh, throughout the Jim Crow South. Yeah. And of course, the most famous images of the civil rights movement, specifically in Birmingham. Correct. And then, and then even, and um, yeah, and then even Django Unchained uh, has that that moment where Tarantino writes in that the dog attack of the enslaved man who refused to fight uh, for the slave owner. That's so right. I, I started to get into this notion, applying these other interdisciplinary techniques. Of what is the memory? of canines in African-American consciousness and and suggesting that you can even understand the development of American race relations and racism 
by looking at it from an interspecies perspective and in that we commonly think of racial violence or racist violence as a strictly human to human phenomenon. But when looking at the historical record and how that's borne out, it's much better understood when different species are considered as well. And this is something that 19th century people were, you know, they paid a lot of attention to. Uh, they were not trying to hide the abuses that were going on. They were not trying to hide the fact that they were debasing human beings underneath canines mm. uh, by ritual, by ritualizing the violence against them or bringing them back to the plantation and hunting them as they would a, a common deer or something to that effect. So we, I've decided to take the project into, you know, the contemporary moments, specifically looking at convict leasing the expansion of the prison system and how the folklore largely preserved through blues artists reflects a continuity in the slave system in this respect that once again, dogs are being used in nearly the exact same way as they would, as they were under enslavement. And I've, I've even found some records that teach people how to train bloodhound puppies for police work and they specifically emphasize that the person who should be used to train them should be black because there was there were these racist theories about emitting a stronger smell or the idea that the black body was expendable wow this point so there, there was a deliberate technique of training in a in a racialized way and as the urban police units expand and the canine units start to infiltrate black neighborhoods. All of this predates the civil rights movement. It's just that the pictures from Birmingham would be publicized so heavily that that would be the first introduction to the broader American population about interspecies violence. But stuff like that was already known amongst black Americans for multiple generations by that point. So it wasn't necessarily a surprise but in regards to this question of abolition, under enslavement, bloodhounds were frequently referenced by abolitionists as one of the main brutalities of the system. And then once we get to the civil rights movement, the police dog becomes a symbol of subjugation. Right. Uh, every time people reference, you know, fighting for one's rights, they say they, they used to sick dogs on us. And so it becomes a rallying cry uh, to suggest that no Americans should be subjected to that type of brutality, specifically being debased below an animal. I'm, I'm just at a loss of words right now for, for, for many reasons. And this is not a new concept, but well, for me, maybe for the audience, but what, how you depict this trajectory of the inception of this breed of dog and its evolution yeah. is mind blowing because now what when you mention how because now this goes back to folklorists and ethnomusicologists involved in in historic research and there's there's this era of of the twenties and thirties was where where John Lomax is going to all these yeah. prisons. You know yeah. and what I found and tell me if you found this as well, 
especially in Mississippi, because Mississippi has the biggest um, prison camp, if I'm not mistaken. And what what happens is the, the sheriffs and, and officers begin arresting people and getting paid by these prison camps mm-hmm. for for each particular individual alleged uh, prisoner. Yeah. Have you found that they were utilizing these dogs as well? So I can't I can't speak to the specifics of that. But okay. I guess I guess the thing I can say is the the acquisition of a human tracking canine, um, and specifically in this case, uh, a human of African descent. That from the antebellum days was a relatively lucrative option for people who couldn't afford slaves. So I guess I guess to kind of backtrack, one of the reasons dog ownership in the U.S. South specifically for human tracking becomes so prevalent is that a lot of people couldn't actually afford to own enslaved right. people. So there were a lot of you know poor or marginalized whites that actually didn't own enslaved people. But the way that they could invest in the system was to acquire um, what they called Negro dogs and essentially advertise their services because there was a, a large demand for procuring runaways. So the one way that, you know, a poor white person could assert power over, you know, a Southern slave owner is if the person comes along and asks them for their services, because they know that the best of what they do or they have the best dogs is they could essentially force them to pay them whatever they asked for. You know, they could do like a $30 per diem, uh, $10 if they brought him back alive, $5 if they brought him back dead. And so the, the the slave owner was captive to this poor white person who had a particular skill set that was based upon the brutalization of black people. Correct. I can only imagine that that continues within the Jim Crow period, because every single reference that I find in the early 20th century, and the late 19th century is a nearly direct reflection of how dogs are being used to essentially capture and entrap black people. Um, and so in, in this case, I, I can only imagine that there was some aspect of increased payments uh, for capturing and containing people of African descent in the prison system at that time. Okay, so now backtracking to after the Revolutionary War um, and prior to until maybe about 1815 or so, in your studies, did you come across the Georgia man who fits the same description of what you just said, a rough and tumble, possibly poor white guy who couldn't afford slavery as um, domestic slavery became a business. Do, yeah. do, did you come across them and, uh, along with this um, research in, in hound dogs? Yeah, so this is a good point. So one thing that you, you do find, I mean, in regards to the representation of kind of the early slave trader in the 1815 called Georgia Men, like you suggested, by the, by the 1830s when the when slave hunting is which was called becomes an option for a number of you know poor white people throughout the US South 
the way that they are typically depicted, um, whether contemporarily or later, was almost like a a frontiersman. So the type of dress wow. that they had was was considered distinct. Um, and the type of look they had was considered more rugged. So it wasn't that they were necessarily considered, you know, dirty or anything like that. They, you know, they, they wore a lot of fur and things like that. And there, there's some pretty good research that someone else is doing on this that I don't think is yet published, but there is certainly an, an identity being ascribed to a slave hunter or a professional slave hunter in which they are re- represented largely as a person who you know dresses in furs and you know looks like they live outdoors or they're familiar with the rural environment um or they they live off the land type of thing so you do you do see that reflected in in what at least the available accounts that describe them but the, but those are but those are somewhat rare so i think that i should probably be careful in generalizing because there were slave owners who procured dogs themselves because they didn't want to hire anybody. Right. So it wasn't uncommon, at least by probably the 1850s for a large plantation owner to have, you know, a litter of dogs that just lived on the plantation. And then if an, if an enslaved person ran away, that particular dog would be used to chase them. And so even from this perspective, you have to imagine these circumstances in that, an enslaved person is sharing the space with an animal that is trained to hunt them if they try to escape. So even from that perspective, it's probably even more psychologically. Absolutely. Because I just want to go to use the bathroom and the dog might think I'm running away. <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> just everyday yeah. thing. Wow. So now I, we, we, we can come to a, a conclusion right about now. I, I would like you I I know you um, referenced it earlier with jumping the broom, but I I would like you for both topics that you're bringing to the world for that matter to to help edify and give proper context of these situations. Because I I like to bring a full circle to, to kind of bridge the gap of then and today. So how do how are both and for me, you know, I'm 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 a history and folklore nerd. So this is geeking out to me. So I'm, you know, but for the audience bringing full circle, how could these two be two topics be related in today's society and what you're seeing? Okay, no, this this is a great point. So I think maybe on on an initial point that I'd emphasize is for people who aspire to discover and learn for themselves. I just always tell people that there's always so much more that we don't know Um, things that haven't been uncovered yet. And there, there is room for everyone's contributions in this type of analysis. I mean, I've benefited from casual conversations I've had with people. I mean, including this podcast, I mean, everything that I do benefits from the conversations I have with people and people who are just curious in general. And, and so I think that research in general relates to existing in a world in which we, we talk to one another and try to advance um, our agendas. And I guess another point that I emphasize is 
in the relevance to these topics, there's a few things. On, on the one hand, what initially comes to mind is studying enslavement and the subjection and subjugation of peoples and, and the murder of peoples is a heavy toll on anybody. And, yeah. and I, I even had, in speaking specifically to this project on, on bloodhounds, I actually had a student who had to stop researching it because he was becoming a little overwhelmed with the information. And I guess when I think about this and, and the heaviness that it bears, I have to go back and reflect that wherever I see subjugation, wherever I see oppression, I always see resistance as well. Uh, there, there are always people who are fighting in a variety of different ways to improve not just their own situation. I mean, there are plenty of people who never realized their goals, but they, they were committed to the, to the purpose and committed to the cause and eventually seeing their people and their community freed or free, or at least free of um, subjection. So I just always emphasize that there's relevance to this because I am much more interested in exploring how people respond to these as well. I mean, the other, the other historical items are important. I mean, it's important to know why uh, these canines or why jumping the broom was introduced. But I think it's, I think the more important, at least area of exploration is how did people respond to it? How did they react to it? And what does that legacy mean? So if it's true that in regards to African-American history, jumping the broom is a ritual that could be traced largely to slavery. Does that mean a descendant just dismisses it as a slave custom or something that we that no longer has relevance? If we think that, then we're doing a disservice to the people who talk about it. I always encourage people to find the sources, read about what people thought. Don't just read a history book. What do, what do the footnotes say? Where can you find these things? And and go back and look at it for yourself and, and make your own conclusion. Um, now, with regards to the legacy of canines and canine units, I mean, that's perhaps even arguably more literally apparent in that canines are still being used in recent history to um, attack violently uh, young men and women of African descent. And so what what is the legacy of this? What are the reforms that could be imposed? And also in trying to get allies, perhaps, what is the relevance for broader American society? Um, people should be horrified that there's a legacy of slavery that at least still bears some resemblances to it in the modern day. And then the civil rights movement, um, knowing that we haven't just moved beyond history, but the history remains relevant. And so as a scholar, I largely see my position here to provide the information and to allow people to come to their own conclusions and at the very least inspire their own activism. How are they applying the information in their own lives and how can they use it to uplift their own communities? Um, so uh, I largely see that as my main impulse, which is why one of the things I've done as of late, and I think this is how you and I mostly met, is publishing my work on public platforms uh, like Black Perspectives and, and other channels to ensure that it's, it's reaching a broader public. So I guess that would be my, my grand statement on, on the relevance of it. But 
just for people to always look for resistance. That that's the most important component. You always look for resistance and you always look for people who are trying to change things. I dig it. And and respect the, the history and its trajectory, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the more we know about the past, the more I think we can understand the present. Tell people where to find you and well, you, you mentioned Black Perspective. Tell them where to find you and your other publications. Because you, you aren't you an editor for a publication as well, correct? Yeah, I am. Uh, so I, I do a few things. I, I mean, I'm, I'm at University of Nevada, Las Vegas in the African-American and African Diaspora Studies uh, program. Um, if you just Google search me, you can find me there. But uh, most of my most of my article publications are actually available on my website under the academia.edu website. Um which I don't know what the forward slash is, but if you just typed in Tyler D. Perry academia.edu, you'd be able to find me and read most of my publications there on these topics. And then I do do the book review. I'm the book review editor for Black Perspectives, uh, which is pretty prominent on Twitter. And I believe it's at BLK Perspectives. And that, I mean, that is a component of the African-American Intellectual History Society, which is designed to bring African-American intellectual history and, and other parts of the diaspora into public venues. And all of the articles are free to read. Uh, you have some of the most brilliant scholars contributing to it. And I, I do the book reviews for it. So if people are interested in reviewing a book for Black Perspectives, I actually do welcome them to contact me because we are always looking for reviewers. So if there's a book on the history of the Black diaspora or African-Americans that you'd like to review, just let me know. and. Uh, I can get back to you on that. But yeah, I mean, I, that's my public profile, I guess. But the book. Is, I mean, uh, you, you said that in such a nonchalant, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I mean, for those of us familiar with with platform that, that, and, and the things you're doing along with that platform, this is a big feat, my man. But I, I mean, I'm just grateful to be here, to be honest with you. <laughs> but, I dig it. I dig it. Okay, groovy. So it was great talking to you, man. Thank you for your time. Yeah, I appreciate it. It was an honor.